Accounting firm owners, if your firm can only grow as fast as you can find the time to take on new clients, you're not alone. Fortunately, Dark Horse CPAs has built a platform-style CPA firm that will transform your practice. It has the technology, resources, staffing, qualified inbound leads, and community that will enable you to spend your time growing your practice, serving clients, and doing more of what you love. Stay tuned to learn more about how Dark Horse CPAs is saving public accounting one firm at a time. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where we talk about insider trading rather than the insides of traders, you know, uh, like traders who have been disemboweled, their insides. Right. From murder. Yeah, because we don't that's that's not what we talk about here. Not murder. Usually not murder. But 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 we do we do talk about insider trading. We do, we absolutely do, and we absolutely do yeah. on this episode. Hello, welcome. I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. And for today's episode, we interviewed Professor Daniel Taylor. He's from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and he has done a lot of research on predicting fraud and a lot of work on insider trading. And this he was suggested to us by a previous guest, Francine McKenna. And I remember looking at his CV and looking at some of the work he was doing and thinking to myself, Oh shit, this guy's gonna be super intimidating. <laughs> like his work is right. Because his work is very his work is very impressive. And we had a very nice conversation. It was really fun and very enlightening. We learned a lot. I, at least I did. Yeah, I did. I thought it was a fantastic interview. And like like we said, so he's done a lot of he's he's been published and he's done a lot of research on predicting fraud. So he's basically like a palm reader, but instead of reading your palm, he reads data. And the only part of your future that he can see is the part of your future where you commit fraud. So yeah, it's there. There is an occult side to him, but it's really very limited. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it, it's a fantastic conversation, and we'll, we'll stop bandying about. So without further ado, here's Greg and I with Professor Dan Taylor. So Dan, um, Francine's going to be your colleague pretty soon. That's right. Yep. Looking forward to it. Looking yeah, forward. yeah. It's It's been quite a... I mean, like I said, she and I first became acquainted in probably 2008 or so. And like at that time I was still, I was still working at a firm, but I was reading her work on the internet, even back, you know, on the web back then, but it's been, you know, and we've remained close over the years, but it's been, I've been, I I don't know. I'm thrilled for her to, to, to land this job. I think this is, uh, I don't know. I don't know if she's been explicitly working toward it, but I mean, it's something I know she's excited to do. And so anyway, I hope that it serves as a validation of, you know, her ability and, and her credentials and, and her value. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how could it not going to be in the Wharton school? That's a, uh, that's amazing. And that's impressive for anyone you've been, it looks like you've been there since 2010. Is that right? 
That's right. Yeah. That's and and just to let you know, uh, UPenn was on my daughter's short list of schools she wanted to get into. She's not. Okay. She's going to San Diego State instead. I'm not going to say that's because her grades weren't good enough for UPenn. I'm going to say that's because the weather in San Diego has a unique draw for an 18 year old that uh, that uh, Pennsylvania doesn't quite match. So, well, if it makes her feel any better, I couldn't get into. <laughs> Wharton or University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. I was a state school boy at University of Delaware. Right on. I was University of Washington where I started out. So same kind of. Did you, did you grow up on the East Coast, Dan? Yeah, I grew up in Delaware for 21, 22 years. But my wife and I were uh, freshman sweethearts at University of Delaware. Moved to North Carolina for two years and Palo Alto for five years okay. and then back to Philadelphia. Nice. Okay. Now, did, so I think you're a little bit older than, I mean, Greg's older than me. I think you're a little bit older than me just looking at like the timing of your CV. But did growing up, do you remember seeing crazy Eddie commercials on TV? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm glad you didn't say you look older than me because you're balding. That's so, you know, re- relative <laughs> to my CV, that was a good, that was a good. Hey, come on. We got, you got to have the shiny heads unite. We're good. You don't, I like to, I like to say my hair didn't quit. It got fired. So that's a, that's how that is. Um, you you have you've researched tons of stuff that's super exciting to us. I know there's insider trading, there's some predictive analytics of fraud, all sorts of stuff like that. But what got you into uh because you because fraud and forensics, that's like that's your jam. That is my jam. It wasn't always my jam, but it's my jam now, and it'll probably be the jam for the remainder of the years that I'm on the planet. Awesome. What got what got you there? What blew your skirt up about fraud and forensics? So I think two Two, let's call it life-changing events occurred probably in the past five years, seven years, maybe three life-changing events, actually. The first one was, I wrote this paper that just got published in 2020. So it takes these papers like eight years to get published. Okay. So don't ask me about the publication process. That's <laughs> not it takes. Okay. And, um, it was a paper on insider trading during the last financial crisis, the housing crisis. Oh, Okay. <laughs> And we had generated a uh, social network map of directors' relationships with various banking authorities, like the you know Federal Reserve and the Treasury. Uh-huh. And then we had looked at how their trading behavior during the financial crisis varied based on where they were in the network map. So were they one degree of separation from the Federal Reserve, two degrees of separation from the Federal Reserve, these sorts of things. And we found some evidence that really looked like connected officers and directors were front-running their bank's tarp infusion. Okay. So, you know, you got the date of the tarp infusion because they had to file their applications publicly. We submitted FOIA requests to get their applications. You have the date they applied, the date the, the news comes out that they got it. It's like, well, you would think that the application for TARP infusion would be considered material non-public information if it wasn't disclosed. You know, they might have disclosed. Right. And so you would think that they would, you know, like hang back and maybe not trade, maybe abstain from trading. But what we found is, is that the, those who are really close to the Federal Reserve and to the Treasury traded very aggressively within days before their bank received the TARP infusion. And what was so neat about it is we were able to control for a lot of factors. So we could compare Dan, who's connected, 
Dan's trading to Joe's trading at the same bank. So the only difference between Dan and Joe was that someone was there. Huh. So we post the paper and, uh, you know, I get a call from some regulatory authorities, you know, and they say, oh, Professor Taylor, I saw this really interesting paper, you know, unsolicited call. We'd like to talk to you about this paper. They say, oh, you know, happy to do that. You know, teaching this semester, let's schedule it, you know, at the end of the month. And no, Professor Taylor, coincidentally, we will be in Philadelphia tomorrow in unrelated business. We're going to be stopping by at 9 a.m. <laughs> to raid your office? This feels like they're, they're about to raid. Uh, so this was, you know, this was back when, well, it was named Neil Borofsky was insisting that all of the SIG TARP agents be armed and carry, you know, like weapons. So it was, you know, it was like, we're going to, I think it was a little bit more of showmanship sure, than, sure. than, than anything. Hey, but, and, uh, and just real quick, because we're talking about something that was over a decade old, just remind, remind, cause I, I, I vaguely remember TARP. That was the, that was basically the federal bailout money for the great recession, right? For the banks, for, the troubled okay. asset relief program that took equity stakes. Gotcha. Not buying their bonds like we do now. No, no, no. Taking equity, equity ownership. Right. Gotcha. Um, okay. I yes, I do remember that. Also, refresh my memory. Am I am I wrong in saying that at first everybody was going, "Why the hell are we doing this?" And then, big picture, after all the dust settled, the the government actually made some money on the tarp equity positions that they took. Is that right? Or am I remember that wrong? I, I believe that's correct. Okay. I that's okay. Correct. So I think to, to refresh, I think initially TARP was not proposed as an equity injection because that would be problematic. Okay. Like there's a lot of people in Congress that says, what do you mean you're, the government is actually buying equity in a bunch of private, like that would not have gotten through Congress. Right. Instead, originally TARP got authorized as sort of like this blank check. Hey, bail out the financial system. Too big to fail. And then it, yeah. Right. And then it morphed into rather than buying bonds, it morphed into actually privatizing a portion of equity. Okay. You know, in, in a variety of things. And, and so was the insider trading that happened? I'm assuming what happened then is that the people who had this money, they were buying shares of their bank because they knew they were going to get this injection of of capital. Because when I think insider trading, I'm always like people who like, we got horrible news coming down the pipe, sell, sell, sell. But this was the opposite where they're like That's going, right. oh, we're going to get, we've been tanking for a long time. Now we're going to, we're going to rebound. So let's yeah. buy some of this. And so the paper opened up uh, a rabbit hole that I've been going down for the past <laughs> many, many years, decade, maybe, or less than a decade. First, it opened up what I consider to be weaknesses. And we can get into this over the course of podcast in insider trading laws in the United States. Like there is no insider trade. There's no law in the US that says you can't engage in insider trading. That, right. wait, what, that. wait, what? That's not there's no law that says you can't engage in insider trading. Why, why why did Martha Stewart have why did uh, why did she why was she locked in her mansion for, <laughs> for this, all those this, months? Now you're you're gonna those your listeners are gonna earn their CPE credits on this. Nice. One. Lay it down. So <laughs> There's something lo known as case law, and then there's something known as like codified statutes. Right. So there's no codified statute against insider trading. That would actually be quite helpful because then it would define what insider trading was. And then it would say like, if you do this, you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, we don't have that. Instead, what we have is case law, which is built up around charging under uh, anti-fraud provisions, wire fraud, mail fraud, uh, uh, theft of information, misappropriation. So uh, basically these two theories of insider trading are you steal information, that's misappropriation, and you use it for your own benefit. Okay. Right? So that would be like your credit card analyst is the case. Your credit card analyst at Capital One, you see 
JCPenney's retail sales in real time through the Capital One credit cards, and you decide to front run JCPenney's earnings announcement. That is stealing information from Capital One and using it for your own benefit. Oh, okay. Misappropriation. Okay. The other theory of insider trading is the classical theory, which is that comes from the fi- violation of a fiduciary duty that officers and directors have. Like, hey, if you know what the earnings is going to be, you either disclose the earnings or you abstain from trading. So there, insider trading is a violation of some other duty. Okay. Duty care, confidence, fiduciary duty. Gotcha. So I think that's fascinating because obviously, you know, embezzlement is just misappropriation of assets. I've never heard of misappropriation of information before, but that's but you're saying that's based on case law. That's just people been. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's why you have blackout windows around M and A deals. Yeah, that's why there's blackout on like the printers, like the if there's like an investment banking deal, maybe between you know Twitter or you know or Elon Musk. You know, there's <laughs> going to be printers who are printing off the decks. Like they can't trade on that. That would be stealing information mm. and appropriating it for their own. Yeah. For their own game. Wow. That's. Uh, but anyway, where I was going with this is that typically gets charged on hard information. Like, oh, the CFO knew that earnings was going to be 30, 36 cents a share and earnings came out to be, you know, 36 cents a share. Market was expecting, you know, 40 cents a share. Yeah. That's different than soft information. And that's really what I think we were talking about in the TARP and the, and, uh, in the TARP insider trading. There we were talking about this idea where, you know, maybe you get a call from your buddy at the Federal Reserve, you know, and says, Hey, Jim, you know, government's going to step in. You know, we're going to do what measures are necessary to, you know, save the financial system. And, you know, we're going to help you guys out. Click. Right now, to a statistician and to a market participant, that's the currency of the realm. That's inside information right there. You've revised your probability yeah. that you're going to get a bailout and that the government's going to step in upward. But there are some defense lawyers that would say, well, you didn't say how much they were getting. Didn't say, you know, when they were getting it. There was no hard information exchanged. And so that pointed out to me where I think there's this disconnect between statistics, economics, and the law Okay. in terms of where things get this gray area of what, what's considered information, what's not considered information, what's considered insider trading, right. and what's not considered insider right. trading. And that, to me, it's much clearer when you have statistics and you have economics, whether something is misappropriation or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, so interesting. So- if I may, so this was the this was the this was the first event that, as Greg said, blew up your skirt with regard to fraud. Yeah, so I got these guys from, you know, regulatory agencies. I go up to you know to New York to the SDNY. They're like I'm really stoked about this because you can imagine this is the height of the crisis. They want to put some heads on some platters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then. You know, in terms of, so that was the first thing. So I was like, wow, this was really interesting. You know, I was very happy to, that my work would be useful outside of the hundred or so accounting academics that normally only read my work. <laughs> right, 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 right. You got a little, little broader audience. Yeah, yeah. broader audience, right? Can actually do some, do some justice, do some, do some, uh, do some good on the planet. Yeah. So then uh, that led me to do more, more insider trading type, insider trading type stuff. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was I got tenure, right? So that was also life changing. 
And if tenure isn't changing your life, I think you're probably doing something wrong. Because tenure, for those of you that don't know, this is, you know, like they can only fire you for cause or if you do something like moral turpitude or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, if you, if you start insider people. trading, if you use your, yes. use your work for evil and yeah. Uh, yeah, I get it. So that was a really big deal for me because that freed me up to work on academic projects that I wanted to work on as opposed to ones that my colleagues liked or the, or the broader academic, not necessarily my colleagues per se, but broader accounting academics like. So most people come as a surprise. Most accounting academics don't like insider trading. So it's really hard to get insider trading papers published in accounting academia. Oh, even though they're so useful. Oh, interesting. So, so you're, so you're, you're, uh, you're playing a song that that's the wrong genre for the for your audience. But now that you've that's got, right. just because people are like insider trading, we don't. Because I get, I get that you don't. I mean, I, I'm I'm a CPA. I've been a CPA for uh, over ten years now, and uh, and yeah, I don't. I I can't remember anything that I've read about uh, you know the the role of accounting specifically in insider trading. You know, the, the closest is like backdating stocks, that kind of thing. Well, you should read some, you know, you read some of my work. We've got I, some insight trading on audit reports, uh -huh. you know, yep. the audit report gets briefed by the auditor and earnings announcements. But the point is, is that in academics, at least in academic accounting, they want to answer broad theories. What theory are you testing? And it's like, I'm not really testing a theory, guys. I'm looking at whether the CEO is misappropriating information for his own personal benefit. And so it's not just insider trading. I would say forensics in general within the ivory halls of academics is not held in as high a regard as it should be. Gotcha. Mm. Because it's not, it's not theory testing. It's describing the way the world is. So tenure freed me up to do more insider trading and to do more forensic work because now I can do what I, what I want to do without the consequences of whether, you know, the people at. MIT or Chicago or Stanford or more really like my work. Right. Because one of the things you have to do to get tenure is you have to get 12 to 16 outside people in academia that aren't at your school to write letters of recommendation saying how awesome you are. <laughs> and you don't get to pick the 12 to 16. So, you know, that creates a very perverse incentive to, you know, want to be liked and <laughs> yeah, people to respect sure. your work as opposed to being like, yeah, I'm doing this forensic fraud prediction, insider training prediction. If you don't like it, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. can I can I rewind just a second too for a question that that came through my mind? Did you say just a second ago that part of the that that you found cases of insider trading that were done on part of the auditors who were auditing the financial statements before their before their audit? Like they they you're digging in you're an auditor you're digging into people's books you go oh this is horrible I better buy or sell or short these stocks. no no okay no. so let's clarify it's the auditors digging into the books uh. -huh. Maybe they find something problematic, an internal control weakness, there's some missing inventory, you know, whatever flavor of the audit problem it is. Yeah. They go to the board, they brief the board. Okay. And then around the date that the board gets the briefing, before the audit report is disclosed in the 10K, some people on the board execute the bo trades. The board do. Mm. Okay. So the audit brings up information. That information is new to the board. The board says, bingo, I got it now. And then they go sell, sell, sell. Eject. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Right. Now, like you're going to have to impair your goodwill for X. Whoa. You know, eject. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, okay. Right. So, but back up. Do you think that the, 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 what I'm talking about, the case I'm talking about, do you think the auditors are doing trading on the information they have before the 10K is filed, before their audit report comes out, stuff like that. I mean, I am fairly confident, uh, though I have no data to support this because we don't see the trades of the auditors. I am fairly confident that in the history of U.S. capital markets, 
an auditor somewhere has <laughs> traded on private information. Right. With the if they cheat on exams and they do all kinds <laughs> of other funky stuff, you know, like I can imagine that they probably also engage in insider trade. Right. Well, you've got that the case of Scott London, right? The guy at KPMG who he wasn't doing the trades. But he had the, he, it was the misappropriation of information. He gave it to his country club buddy. That guy made trades in Herbalife and whatever else. I mean, they, they hit those guys cold. Like those guys never had a chance, right? Because it was the, the, the trading, the timing of the trades and, and they were just able, the, you know, the analysis that they did at the SEC, it was, it was one of those things that they were able to find fairly easily. So, but it, I think it probably for an auditor, I don't know. I think the firm's independence guidelines would probably prevent any audit. Like you can't own, you can't own shares in a company that you audit. Right. So that's why like, Greg, I'm not oh. sure. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, when you, the way that you would do it is the way that some, some corporate insiders do it. Like you're technically supposed to register your brokerage account. If you're a corporate insider. Right. You know, with the company. But there are cases that the SEC has prosecuted where there was like a side brokerage account. Yes. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So there'd be so ways like, to do it. Yeah. Right. The level of egregiousness is pretty high. It's like yeah. oh, <laughs> a secret brokerage account. And in the secret brokerage account, what are you doing? Right. Well, probably something you shouldn't be doing. That's why it's a secret brokerage account. I mean, the, the Scott London case is pretty funny, though, because they even got pictures of those guys meeting in like a, in like a Starbucks parking lot. Where his golf buddy is like giving him the kickback in a paper bag, in, right. and they have pictures. I mean, it's 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 amazing. Like it's you can't believe that it would be so sloppy. But as you as you said, Dan, like some people get they try to get a little bit more sophisticated than just trading cash in a park. Well, I mean, lot. the SEC is really good at catching people who trade and out of the money puts in calls right before the earnings announcements. Right. Right. And they're really good at catching people who trade bags of cash in exchange for information. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So that's what with, I tell with my dollar students. signs on the outside. Right. Right. I'm just dating like, myself, but that's what I tell my students. The SEC is really good at catching Dr. Eve. Oh, right. The, the oh. Austin Power oh, villain no. tells you what his plan is going to be. It's right. like, oh, you bought out of the money put options right before the earnings announcement. You've never traded out of the money put options or anything in the stock before. Why might that be? Right. That's very different, though, than the types of insider trading that we study or that I study in my work, which is far more strategic and more intentional and more in some sense insidious because it's not as, as obvious. Yeah. Right. Exxon tech. Right. So like what I just described with the other money put option, the trading bags of cash, like that's why you see most insider trading cases the SEC brings tend to be against retail. They're not per se against hedge funds and they're not per se against insider traders right. or not insider or against corporate insiders, I should say. Yep. They tend to be against retail and MIT student or grad student who, you know, uh, the case was he Googled how to engage in insider trading. And, you know, they got <laughs> yeah. proud history and, you know, made, you know, a couple tens of thousands of, of profits. That's very different than a hedge fund, you know, making millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in, you know, illicit profit. And they're really difficult to catch because, right. you know, they're not trading out of the money options right before the earnings. That's right. Right. Okay. So well, well, hold on. Before we get before we get too yeah. far from this, uh, real quick, again, just to rewind a second, just you uh, just uh, you pulled it kind of out of the hat where you were like, if the audit committee came out and said, "Hey, your goodwill's going down the toilet," if goodwill is impaired, that's a credit to goodwill and a debit to comprehensive. Uh, if, <laughs> look, I taught accounting more than one oh, for my first six years at Wharton, and after I got tenure, they let me create my own class. 
you know, data analysis. Right. You know, and, and I haven't done debits and credits for a while. Oh, you haven't gone back to intro to accounting? Okay. <laughs> I have not gone back to intro to accounting. I've, I'm just giving myself a gold star to remember that somehow goodwill relates to comprehensive income. And uh, sorry, sorry, Caleb, go now okay. and ask your real question. No, no. So, okay. So we got, uh, we got two of the three events, the, the insider trading during the housing crisis, tenure. And so what's the, what was the third thing? COVID. COVID. You, just, so, you were stuck at home and had nothing else to do. So you doubled down on insider trading. Something like that. It really, but it, yeah. was much, I mean, it was much more of an epiphany. It was, you know, like COVID was really bad. You know, everybody's had, you know, hopefully, you know, nobody's had on the calls had, you know, loss in their family or whatnot right. or been touched by COVID. But, you know, a fair number of people have and, you know, things were kind of going south. And I think that that causes one to reevaluate where they are on the planet and you know where they are in their life and what their objectives are and my wife ca also calls it a midlife crisis because i'm like 41 right uh, but either way midlife crisis or COVID, and and so what i realized was is well how do i want to use the remainder of my time you know that i have and you know like i enjoy being an educator and i view my mission is to educate my students and teach them about fraud and insider trading you know these 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 bad actors so they can catch them and they know what not to do um another you know, the thing that I like doing about education is I view my job as educating the public. You know, that's why I'm on your podcast. That's why I do a lot of discussion and talks with, with, with the media and surprisingly not, not all of the academics that I hang out with, you know, view it that way. But then I started to wonder, is there some, is there some role for me greater than education? Like education is certainly useful, but can we take it to the next level? You know, can we actively advocate for policy change? Can we actually start, you know, uh, being a little bit more active and, you know, calling out bad behavior and then pressuring our regulators, you know, to do things. And so I've started doing that. I've given some presentations to the SEC. They proposed to revise the rules surrounding rule 10 b one trading plans, um, in large part because of my work. Um, I co-authored something with the sitting SEC commissioner on, on insider trading. Uh, I just, you know, supported testimony a couple of weeks ago at the Senate banking committee by my co-author Rob Jackson on actually codifying, making an actual statute against insider trading where it's defined and then made illegal. So that's going more active, being more proactive and actually trying to change the world. And so now what I think, what I tell my students is it's like, look, if you're looking around and you think that the world is on fire for whatever reason, maybe it's the politics don't agree with you. COVID doesn't agree with you. There's a war going on in Europe. You have two choices if you're an academic. And I mean this with all my heart and soul. You can either study the size of the flames and comment on whether they're blue or they're orange or they're red. Or you can actually pick up a bucket of water. Yeah. And so I think that that was, that marked a substantial change in my mindset to actually go active and to actually, you know, like try and implement change. Right. So, so I, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, since we've, we've kind of covered like the three big things that have like sent you on this path, but you mentioned that forensics and, and, and fraud research, this kind of research is just not that popular within the academic community. And I guess my question for you is why? It seems like this fascinating area that 
has the potential to impact a ton of change, or at least to bring a ton of awareness to these issues that I think everyone would agree are pretty important. So then why are, why aren't more academics choosing this path that path that you've chosen? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I, and I think part of it is institutional momentum. Um, you know, we can look in, and I can describe the way current academia functions now. You know, I'm an editor in one of the top academic journals. Obviously, I've been successful in, in climbing the academic ladder. And, you know, I can make statements about how the world is insofar as, you know, forensics is generally not looked upon. I was just talking, you know, the other week to a, another editor of one of the top accounting journals. And, and uh, you know, he was talking about causal inference and doing randomized controlled trials and trying to, you know, pin down. I said, oh, that's all great, but, you know, we should do other things. What else should we do? Well, we should try and predict fraud. Yeah, I don't really think that as a, he literally told me he doesn't think that that is in place in our top journals. That's something that they do in statistics and computer science. Hmm. Um, and that's not our comparative advantage. Our comparative advantage is answering economic questions about why people do what they do. And I think that's important, but there's a couple of things to parse there. Economic questions and causality. So there's been Nobel Prizes in economics awarded to people for causal inference and for understanding economics. And a lot of the faculty in accounting academics actually were trained by those econ faculty. It might surprise you to learn. I don't actually have an accounting background. I read I did, your CV. I did, an e <laughs> I did an econ degree. Right, right. Right. So most faculty that you see nowadays at top schools when they when the junior faculty not the tenured but the junior faculty the next wave have econ backgrounds not accounting backgrounds and so that skews the type of thing that they're interested in hmm. they're interested in testing theory maybe the capitalized pricing model or whether firms substitute between mandatory disclosure and voluntary disclosure um, you know how the, how to test these sort of like various broad theories using randomized controlled trials or or data. How it got there, I think, is because there has not been a recognition of the value of practice in academia. So one of my good friends, uh, uh, Matt Jakes, who's the former chief accountant in SEC enforcement, left just recently for Alex Partners. You know, he described academia when I. I told him I would use this term as a closed loop system. Accounting academia is like this closed loop plumbing system. Nothing enters, nothing leaves. <laughs> it just circulates the information within within the system. Which which has to trip off that same kind of existential uh, reflection of it's like, what the hell am I even doing if this doesn't get out of the walls of academia? Right. It, it never. So it's a moat. It's really a moat. Like I question. What the business proposition is at some level about accounting academia. Sure, we're training people to be accounting and, you know, to get CPAs and whatnot. But do you really want to be trained by an economist about <laughs> debits and credits and accounting? Now, maybe the answer is yes. But I, I've always been perplexed, perplexed by this. Now, I, what I think is different, I will say, is that the state schools are very different than the, your premier institutions, Warden, MIT, Stanford, Chicago, Harvard. Because I went to University of Delaware. And I was trained by, you know, adjuncts and whatnot who actually were accountants at some part in their lives, right? Like that's where you get these terms like, oh, the CPA mill, where you get the credit hours and, and, and you move on. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these top business schools, they don't have undergrad programs. They're just MBAs. And so there the accounting 
faculty to play more of a service role, you know, to the, you know, to the, to the rest of the, of the majors. Warren's a little bit different. We do have a large undergrad program. It is not a CPA mill. You're not going to get your credit hours to get a CPA, you know, but that, that I think is different in terms of the, the target audiences of the state schools versus let's call it the, you know, your top, your top five private schools. And the top five private schools rule the academic journals. And so that creates this weird imbalance between what they consider to be interesting and what's actually interesting to people who are trying to do accounting and practice. If you own an accounting firm, then you know the struggle. Trying to develop the right technology, the right people, the right marketing and pricing strategies, and the right SOPs while handling all of the one-off issues that come with being a business owner on top of your duty to deliver high-quality work amid pressing deadlines. To say it ain't easy is an understatement. Dark Horse knows that building a scalable practice requires a significant investment of your limited time and money in order to build the infrastructure that you need. And it requires you to be consistently sourcing, developing, and implementing new technologies in order to keep up with the marketplace. Instead of breaking your back trying to build a modern accounting firm, why not just join a firm that has already built what your practice needs to scale? Instead of trading your soul to merge into a giant traditional partnership model firm, why not join a firm that will allow you to keep your autonomy, retain ownership of your practice, and provide you with way more upside in a fast-growing progressive firm? Instead of trying to learn everything you need to know to serve your clients, with why not shortcut your learning curve by collaborating with a supportive group of experienced and knowledgeable peers at Dark Horse? There's a better way to evolve your practice. There's a better way to be a CPA. Dark Horse invites you to visit abetterway.cpa to learn why firms are moving their practice to Dark Horse CPAs. All right. So if I can just recap quickly, what's of interest to the top academic minds that are in this in the field of accounting versus what practitioners do every day, there's a big gulf in between those things. And what you're saying is there doesn't really have to be. There's some practical things that can, we that we can bring together so that your research can be meaningful to people. And it may be more regulatory in nature, you know, talking about some of the things you're doing with the SEC or the Treasury or whatever. But it does have a more downstream impact than this stuff that, like you say, that happens in the, the closed loop system that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, and part of that is I think that it's it's not just specific to accounting per se. I mean, accounting yeah. is somewhat different than the other business fields. But, you know, you've got to get tenure. And at yep. these top institutions, the way you get tenure is by publishing in academic journals. You don't get tenure by being cited in the media or by helping the SEC or catching insider traders or, or fraudsters. You get tenure by publishing in academic journals. Right. And it's unfortunate, but the publisher in an academic journal, practitioner knowledge is not helpful. Right. And so as a consequence, you have this system that is set up to basically reward, you know, like pure academics that are potentially divorced from practice. And that those individuals who are most successful at that are the ones that get tenure. Right, right. So you have this almost like selection bias against practice. Yeah. And so it's only through, I would say, my life experiences or my innate drive to do to do this integration that it's happening. It's certainly not 
compensated or rewarded in, you know, in journal publications or anything, right. or anything right. like that. Uh, and that's, that's truly what I think tenure was intended for. I think tenure was intended. Like, why do we have tenure? We have tenure so that the faculty can feel like they can do world-changing things without the fear of losing their job, right? Yep. And so I always challenge newly tenured faculty members. I said, what are you going to do different? And they say, well, I'm not going to do anything different. And ah, then there's a problem. Like, right. Purpose of tenure was to get you to do something different, to take risk. Right. Right. You think of it like an option. It limits your downside. You can't get fired. So like your left tail outcome is, is eliminated. Yes. Now there's two responses to that. One response is to live the quiet life. Well, I can live out on my ranch and, you know, like five acres and collect my paychecks and still teach off of transparencies because that's yeah. what I've been doing for 30 years. Uh -huh. I assume your listeners are young enough or old enough to know what a transparency is. I, I hope right. so because I don't. So <laughs> do you really not know what a transparency is? I don't, I don't know what a tra what's a transparency. I mean, I know what transparency no, is. No, a transparency like in the classroom, Greg. Remember? Yeah, oh, 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 yeah, we're you're talking overhead projector. No, overhead projector would be like what you use for your PowerPoint decks. Transparency was when they had the giant box. Yeah. And you like the thing yeah, when yeah, it yeah. shines yeah. right up yeah. and it hits yeah. the mirror yeah. and the mirror were flat. Yeah, that's the, a, yeah, yeah, that's not the, yeah. No, I, I give, I thought, I, I, I have, I thought you, I'm so dumb. I'm like going, yeah, transparency in the financial markets. That's very important. And that's what people teach on. And you're going, no, no so the physical, the, 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 the piece of, uh, of translucent paper that you write in the red pen on and you put it up and, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board this now. Is, this is the thing, right? So tenure, your your downside is limited. So you could like live the quiet life. Yeah, yes. right. Still yes. scantron exams for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or you could say, well, my downside is limited. I'm going to take some risk. Uh, uh, that's kind of the model that I have, you know, that I've that I follow. Right. But maybe you know, I'm still programming in SAS. You know, maybe in a couple of years I'll switch to something more more current. But, uh, yeah. but I, I can, I can certainly see there's certainly, it's easy to pick apart faculty. I think that have made their choices mm -hmm. after getting tenure, whether to go the quiet life or whether to, you know, whether to go the, the risk, the risk. Route. So do you feel like, so, so you bringing economics together with accounting and what you said earlier about the thing, the thing that, that gets you get, get your juices flowing is like the causal finding, finding con, the causation of this behavior, do you feel like you're a would you would you classify yourself as a behavioral economist? So for, let me make a correction. First off, I'm not as interested in causal stuff as my, my peers are. Okay, I'm more interested in documenting the bad behavior in the first place. Okay, gotcha. Like to me, you broke securities law. You know, like that's the first thing that's interesting. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Why you broke the securities law is kind of like secondary okay. to me. Okay. Oh. Right, like looking at data, I can say like, "Yep, you traded, you know, out of the money options right before the earnings announcement." What gets me going is when I can run an algorithm and basically flag those observations. Okay, you know, understanding well, you know, times were hard, you know, and and he had to pay for his kids' college or something like that. Right. The yeah, fraud, fraud, fraud triangle shit. Right, fraud triangle stuff. That's useful for predicting where the fraud is occurring. Okay, for sure. Yeah. Yep. But. You know, it's predict. You know, it's the prediction that you know that I'm that I'm interested in. Behavioral economist. 
I don't know. Behavioral economists to me, I think, are more after cause and effect, like these nudges. Yeah. Like yeah. if you if you make the the default option is that you contribute the max to your four hundred one k. There's a lot more people who contribute the max to the four hundred one k. Yeah. I consider myself more of like a, a data scientist. Okay. Let's go out and use the data to detect illicit behavior. Can we detect, you know, manipulation in Bitcoin? Can we detect manipulation in Tether? Can we detect insider trading? Can we figure out who's engaging in accounting fraud? And, you know, to do that, you use data and you use machine learning and statistics, and you also bring in, you know, elements of the fraud triangle to help you see what area of the pond you want to go fishing it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're fishing, right? It's just a question of, are you fishing in the right, uh, in the right place? Gotcha. Right. So a lot of my papers are documenting suspicious behavior as opposed to explaining why that behavior is. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. All right. So then... I'll, I'm going to ask a kind of a general question, but I think it, there's some potential for some interesting discussion here. But so, can fraud really be predicted? I know, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but I we're going to ask the question anyway. So, number one, can fraud really be predicted? And if so, are some types of fraud easier to predict than others? Yeah. So, yes, I think fraud can be predicted, and I do think some types of fraud are easier to predict than others. You know, clearly. The incompetent fraud is the easiest to predict, right? Like you gave the example of the bags of cash. I give you information, you give me bags of cash, right? Or trading out of the money options right before the earnings announcement. We can design an algorithm to look for trading of out of money options right before the earnings announcement, right? Where I think is more difficult. And that's why I think the SEC is good at catching Dr. Evil. But to circle back, what I think is different is there are some frauds that are not predictable that you have to really go after and hunt. And that's the Emperor Palpatine's. And that's because Emperor Palpatine knows that you're looking for him and knows that you're going to try and go after him. And so they're going to construct the insider trading scheme or the accounting fraud in such a way so as to elude detection, right? And they're sophisticated actors. They're not going to be sending their messages on iMessage or emails. You know, they're going to be doing it over the phone or via signal or some other secure messaging app, right? So it's those individuals that are the most important to catch because they're the most devious. And it also means that there's a much larger scope for damages in the fraud or in the insider trading, in the insider trading scheme. But to back to whether fraud is predictable, one of the exercises that I give my students in class is we run through some of these measures that, you know, your listeners may be familiar with the Benish M score, the Tchao F score, you know, these like rule of thumb measures for how you detect accounting fraud, like higher M score, higher accruals might mean higher likelihood of fraud. And I tell them, you know what? I want you to estimate the relation between those ad hoc measures of, you know, accruals or bad behavior, opportunistic accounting, aggressive accounting, let's say, and fraud every year in the sample, you know, all the way back to like the, the 90s. And then I want you to do it for each industry. And tell me whether you get the same relation or not. And the answer is, you know, I suspect most people know the answer. You don't, right? The, the types of fraud that were being committed in, in the 80s, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, like Crazy Eddie, you know, those are much rarer now, right? The economy has changed. The types of firms that we have in the economy have cha has changed. And so consequently, the nature of the fraud has changed. And because the nature of the fraud has changed, the nature of the fraud predictors also need to change. 
right? Whenever there's accounting rule that changes revenue recognition or changes how you do accounting, that potentially changes whether that financial statement line item is more or less predictive of fraud. So yes, fraud is very difficult to predict. There are some, some you know, tried and true indicators of fraud, um, you know, fraud triangle stuff, incentives, opportunity, motive. Those are not always accounting. You know, it's like how much stock does a CEO get? Are they a founder? Do they control the poor? Who their auditor is? You know, these sorts of things. Do they have a past history? But, you know, it is somewhat predictable, but, but it's hard to do. So it's, you know, it's a quest that will probably consume the rest of, you know, one person's life or, or multiple lives. So you're saying that, cause like, I was hoping that you had developed like analytics that you could uh, like be the, you could be those, those kids in the pool in minority report and that you're sending, you're sending uh, Tom Cruise out to, to like handcuff some fraudsters before they're even able to trade those stocks, but not, not so much. No, I mean, okay. you have, I think you've got like the extreme nightmares vision down, <laughs> right? A right. minority report where they arrest you before you've actually right. committed the crime. Right. Right. But let's scroll back. You know, one could imagine not actually arresting people, but the SEC, rather than conducting autopsies on frauds, actually being proactive and sending investigated letters saying, noticed your allowance for doubtful accounts, you know, declined this quarter. And coincidentally, you beat earnings by a penny. And, you know, like there was some other stuff going on, like, what's up with that, guys? As opposed to waiting until a short seller puts out a report or a whistleblower files or the media covers it and then the SEC reacts. So, but, but an S so with the SEC not busting in the door and saying, Hey, your allowance for doubtful accounts went down and you beat the, the, the estimates by a penny, you're going to jail, sucker. You're, what do you think is going to happen with those letters? Do you think they're just going to be like, oh my gosh, they're, they saw what I'm doing? What? Well, the SEC right now sends, you know, comment letters, revenue recognition comment letters. You know, they put out guidance like, hey, SPACs, y'all accounted for this the wrong way. Uh, you know, try again. Okay. And so I think the important thing is if we really want to protect investors, like we have to be proactive. Like you're not protecting investors if the stock price is already plummeted. As right. a result of the fraud. And then you come in and you say, oh, you know, like the murders occurred. There's been a murder here. You know, like, let's lock them up. It would actually be, I think, useful to be sort of proactive and looking for where the murders are going to be occurring and actually trying to get, get out ahead of it. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it's not to be too hard on the SEC because, you know, they have, they are really constrained by their resources and by their budget. I mean, thinking about what's happened in capital markets over the past two decades, like their budget should have grown like 10x, but it hasn't. In fact, I would be willing to bet that it'll shrink in real terms this year because inflation is like at 8%. Yeah. Congress going to approve an 8%, you know, increase in a, in a government entity's budget. I think they should, but I'm not sure that they will. Right. And so they're constrained with what they can do. And so that naturally limits their ability to go proactive. But yeah, I mean, that's what I think, like these algorithms and whatnot are useful, but you know, this is one of the journeys I've been on when I mentioned I was down the rabbit hole. Is there a role and what is the role for private enforcement hmm. as opposed to public enforcement? So public enforcement would be our regulatory agencies, the DOJ, the SEC, CFTC, Treasury. And then private enforcement would be, you know, short sellers, journalists, uh, plaintiff's attorneys, whistleblowers. Um, and uh, 
to be honest with you, I did not quite realize until I began this journey how much of the current ecosystem depends on that private enforcement. Right. And so that's that's something that was surprising, uh, surprising to me. But now that I've gone down the, the journey, I'm actually really, you know, I, I think the SEC is doing the best job that they can. Yep. But I think if we were actually thinking about what would what would maximize social welfare, so I'm going to put on my academic hat, I think that their budget would grow and they would they would shift. Uh, more from a rulemaking agency into into an enforcement agency, just based on the sheer amount of, you know, egregious frauds and insider trading that are occurring. That are occurring. Yeah, because there seems there seems to be there's a both can play a role, right? Like in our conversation with uh, Francine, she mentioned, you know, the I, I think it was the FDIC that had the big settlement against P, PwC, like the biggest ever against an accounting firm. But then you're you're right to point out that the private enforcement is sometimes it it sometimes moves faster and it sometimes gets better results. So in the case of yes. either it's litigation or you say like journalist reporting or whatever the case may be, that role is is I think the or short sellers, I think the role of the private enforcement seems to I don't want to say it has momentum, but it doesn't have the obstacles perhaps that yes. the public enforcement has. Yeah. So um Carson Block, you know, runs Muddy Waters. He has this term, market-based prosecution. You know, we're going to prosecute you in the market. And if you think I'm wrong, come out and present facts and, you know, we'll have a, de- a debate in some sense in the market. And, you know, I do think there's something to that in the sense that if you think about our government agencies as in the enforcement arms of our government agencies, let's imagine a world in which they, they were not quite the Tom Cruise minority report level, but they instantaneously detected a crime and instantaneously enforced it. Okay. Then there would be no role for short sellers. Right. Because they couldn't make any money. Yeah. Right. So the extent to which we have short sellers in the market is really indicative of a failure of our enforcement agencies and the court system to catch the fraudsters and prosecute them in a timely manner. Now, again, it's not like, it's not to say that it's the SEC's fault. Like the court system takes time. We have mm-hmm. to do diligence. We have to do discovery. We want every, don't want anybody's rights to be infringed. But the longer it takes to actually prosecute one of these cases in the, in the courts and the worse our regulators are at actually detecting these items, the greater the scope for short sellers and for journalists and for the private market. I mean, if you really want to go down the, the, the idea, one of my advisors always said, I like wild and crazy ideas, wild and crazy idea. Uh, John Coffey, uh, has this, has this book crisis of under enforcement really subscribed to this idea that he had privatize the enforcement of us securities law. So right now we have a whistleblowing program. Wait, so you, and, and you're saying you support this idea of privatizing the enforcement? Absolutely. Yeah. No Absolutely. kidding. Right. So like right now we have a whistleblowing program. You know, you give a whistleblowing tip to the SEC, they get a penalty, you get 10 to 30%. Yeah. Take it a step further. If you actually want to sue, if you think that they're engaging in accounting fraud in violation of securities laws and you sue them and you win in court, you should be able to get 10 to 30% of the, of the damages directly. Like that would basically allow for a much greater private enforcement. And then the other reason I like this is because I have libertarian tendencies. We tend to think that private sector can do better what government can do. Right. And this is a great example 
where private sector, if given the correct monetary incentives, would I think be able to do it better than, than the public sector or than, than our regulators? Because you'd have the best and brightest working on algorithms to detect fraud and insider trade. And you do see a little bit of this in, in what's known as the, um, uh, the False Claims Act, where you can sue on behalf of, you know, like uh, the government if the doctor's like defrauding Medicare or, or, hmm. or something like this. But we don't have that for securities. And you're saying right now that the closest we get to that, to the privatizing of the enforcement of securities laws, is short sellers. And they're basically, they're getting, they're getting their, their fee through their short sell coming through. And that's also the idea of process. Is that kind of the prosecuting by the market where it's like, if you're doing something bad, you're going to get taken to the cleaners because your shares are going to go. Right. So that would be, yeah. So short sellers do market-based prosecution. Okay. I would say the other key is plaintiff's attorneys mm -hmm. who do the private enforcement, you know, through class action and derivative suits. Okay. So let me give you an example. And this is important. And I want you guys to think about this and have your listeners think about mm -hmm. this. Suppose that I see beyond a shadow of a doubt, someone engage in insider trade. What do I do about that? I'm not, I'm, that's not in my firm. You, you know, I, I come to, I come to find this in the data. You also, you also engage in insider trading and then you get rich and they're punished by the market. Is that the right answer? All right. So that's, I guess maybe that's the first I, <laughs> thing is to clone their trades. Yeah. yeah like yeah. Duplicate. I mean, Emperor so, Palpatine has to have a, a Padawan or, you know, apprentice of some kind. Apprentice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you could clone the trade. You come to the like, come to the dark side, <laughs> right? You go to the dark side. Yeah, it's always enough. Yeah, right. Always enough. Or you go whistleblow. Okay, you know, to the SEC. Uh huh. You know, but like you get, or you tell a journalist. Uh huh. Right. That's really it. You can't sue them. You can't sue the company. Yeah. Now the whole telling a journal journalist thing. I just want to just want to warn you. You're coming dangerously close to opening opening the Pandora's box of Wirecard, which we promised we would not do with you today. So I'm going to slowly back away from that. And instead, okay. I'm going to ask you this. So what? So you said earlier, you said the SEC is is bad at catching Emperor Palpatines. You said they're good at catching... What was the other... The other type that you, Dr. Evil. Dr. Evil. That's right. Which, which I love. I love that. But what do you think? What's your prediction just in terms... Because here's what I'm getting gathered from your that that uh, that metaphor of of emperor palpatine as being a fraudster that it's some well you said they're very sophisticated they're in a place where they can they can hide and bury bury their fraud they can do stuff they're they're smart enough and they're forward thinking enough to figure out how to perpetrate their fraud without getting caught is that that's kind of what we're saying right Yes. Or if they do get caught, they hide behind their lawyers. Okay. How many of those do you think that, because, because I always like to say that, and this is based on some of the, some, well, actually some of the behavioral e economist studies that I've, I've uh, looked at in terms of just ethical behavior in general, because the ACFE says that like 5% of the revenue of, in the world is misappropriated through fraud, whether that's financial statement fraud or whatever. And I, and I like to say that, that, that the vast majority of that is going to be just, just you know, dummies who were just stumbled into it and who take the money, and not not your Bernie Madoffs, not your Bernie Ebers, not these guys. But but that but that theory that the vast majority of fraud is just perpetrated by people who are who are opportunistic, uh, who are Doctor Evils or or less or or their or the son Doctor Evil's sons. 
happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, my theory is that most of the fraud is that most of the losses due to fraud come from just that because it's so widespread. My theory would be undermined if there is a significant number of these Emperor Palpatines who are executing very elaborate, very you know, very sophisticated frauds and just don't get caught. Yeah, what I think I think. You forced me to pick one. It's definitely the latter. It's definitely the Emperor Palpatine. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, that's a that's a. Well, let me let me give you an example. No, this, this isn't fraud. Uh-huh. Okay, this is not illegal activity. But this is kind of what I think most people would say. Like, whoa, that's like that's super super sketch. Uh-huh. You know, so there are these things called ten B five one trading plans. I don't know if you or your audience have heard of those. Yeah, these things you might have he- you heard about in the context of the vaccine manufacturers, Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah. The idea is, is you write down some limit orders that you want to place to sell, you know, 10 million shares. If you're the executive, you hand it to your broker and then your broker just robotically executes the limit orders. So, and then if it happens that you sell right before you announce bad vaccine news or good vaccine news, you could say, whoa, 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 I gave them the plan, you know, like three months in advance. I didn't know at the time, right? That's the idea is to give this affirmative defense. You know, so you could think about it like a good example who does this is Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, where it's basically they want to sell up a massive chunk of equity and they just sell every day or every week well, at the same time, the same day. So there's there's no discretion. There. Okay. Right. But there's nothing that requires that. So there are executives who will adopt the plan for a single trade, one trade and one trade only. And it'll execute on the day the plan was adopted. Okay. And so you'll say like, oh, well, that's not consistent with the spirit of the rule. You know, like it's supposed to be pre-planned. Yeah. Well, it is pre-planned. I planned it in the morning at 8 a.m. <laughs> and it executed at 2 p.m. Right. And like, well, why didn't you sell a chunk over time? Well, I don't have to sell a chunk over time. You know, I sold it there. And because I sold it on a 10 v 5 plan, I have an affirmative defense against insider trading. Right. So you basically, that would be an example of how someone could take the legal system or some rules and use it in a manner to shield what would otherwise be considered to be illicit activity. Right. Uh, and that is what Emperor Palpatine does. And Emperor Palpatine involves lots of lawyers so that if someone called them on, he could say, well, I asked my general counsel and general counsel said I could do it. I was just relying on my general counsel's advice. I didn't have Medzrea or Santer. You know, I didn't have any criminal intent. I just asked the GC. GC told me I could do it. Right, right, right. So that is how the really bad stuff gets done. Gotcha. And so I think, you know, you can read some of my work, but, you know, a lot of my work is hinting around how rules that that Emperor Palpatine uses to get around things. Another great example, something we're working on is, you know, there'll be a blackout window for an earnings announcement. So, for example, you'll say like, okay, you've got an earnings announcement upcoming. Typically, most firms have an earnings blackout window that says, like, thou shalt not trade if you're an officer and director 30 days before the earnings announcement. Because you all know what the press release is going to be. You all know what the results are. And we don't want to subject anybody to legal jeopardy. So you can't trade. Makes sense? You maybe have seen blackout windows around M&A. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The firm enforces the blackout window, not the SEC. The firm enforces the blackout window. You know what was news to me? And I'm still kind of shocked by that. If you have a director on the board and the director has a hedge fund, the blackout window doesn't apply to the director's hedge fund. It really applies to the director. Really? That's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's almost yeah. like I, I feel like there's, 
I feel like council, like when you're talking about these Emperor Palpatines talking to their council, I picture a, a, like a, a chunky guy in a bad suit and a comb over chomping on a cigar and going, and it's all perfectly legal. And that <laughs> with the with this whole thing, and that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, but he's not. He's a really slick looking guy. Oh, he's well dressed. Yeah. He's, he's got, got a very little, nice suit. Oh, he's got, he's got a very squared, nice suit. Right. Came from the best law school in the land. Uh-huh. You know, works in a white shoe defense firm. Uh-huh. Where, you know, former white shoe defense firm. Maybe even, you know, you know, there's this thing called the rota- rotating, uh, rotating door. Revolving door, I should revolving say. Revolving door, yep. Yeah, revolving door. You know, do we want our best white collar defense firms running our enforcement agency at the SEC? Now, you know, good job for um, Grubier Grewal. Who's at the SEC now? Not from the uh, white collar defense community, from New Jersey. Former, I think he's former attorney general. I think that's great. I think that's the kind of change that we need. I really worry about when we bring in defense attorneys to run enforcement. Trivia question: Somebody could shoot me an email if I'm wrong. I don't think a plaintiff's lawyer has ever been either an SEC commissioner or running SEC enforcement. Hmm. Interesting. So think about that. Mm-hmm. So you got somebody, the SEC is like, ah, we think we got you dead to rights. Well, my counsel is Mary Jo White. My counsel is, you know, the former, a former SEC commissioner. My counsel is Jay Clayton. Right, right. My counsel is Pekin. You know, so guess what the judge is going to say? Well, this guy used to work at the SEC. He knows how the SEC works. Mm -hmm. You know, Jay or Mary Jo White or whatnot can exactly explain to the judge and to their former underling at the SEC who sits across from them where they went wrong. Hmm. And, you know, history shows that they are very effective advocates for their clients. Wow. Now, an interesting question is, academic question is, you're thinking about this as from society's perspective, because we're the taxpayers. Is that what we want? Do we really want to pay these individual salaries so that they can then leave the SEC and then advocate on behalf of clients who the SEC is charging for white collar activities? No, I believe that everyone is entitled to the best defense possible, but we are, we did pay as taxpayers for counsel to come to the SEC and be schooled up in what the SEC is doing. And now they're using it against a taxpayer funded agency. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's what. Okay, I, I don't know if until just recently my brain broke as much as you expected my brain to break by your story, <laughs> but you're you're saying that there's former heads of the SEC who are now like, yeah, I served my term, cool, public service, I'm done, and now they're going, now I know every single loophole in this whole thing, and I'm going to help public companies navigate this and i so the former sec heads end up becoming the 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 chubby guy and with the comb over and the very impressive suit chomping on the cigar telling people it's perfectly legal that's what's that's what's happening well in some cases they were so in the case of mary joe white and jay clayton they both they worked as defense lawyers for corporate clients before they went to even the SEC. before. Okay. Yep. And then they went and then they both went back. But I would say, and you know, Dan, you probably, I mean, you know about this too, but it's, it's, it's a problem throughout the revolving door is a serious problem throughout government. Like, so there was a big, there's a big, uh, there's a couple of articles in the New York times recently about firms like EY mm-hmm. sending people to the IRS and the treasury 
top yes. top t- top tax lawyers in EY that. and and, el- and elsewhere. They send them to IRS and the Treasury. They do two three years stint there, and then they go back to their firms. And sometimes they go to a different firm, but they go back and they get big new national positions. And it's uh, it, it's the same idea, but in you know just different aspect of the federal government. And it happens. It happens at all levels. And I mean, it's 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 definitely a a, a serious problem. Yes, um, and, it, and like you say, absolutely. questions should be raised in those circumstances. But it's sure. also an answer in the context of the SEC. Like someone's go Taylor, if there's all this fraud going on and insider trading going on, why are, why isn't there more things? And the answer is that's an answer to it. Is that right. revolving door? I right. mean, Mary Jo White, as you know, defended the Sackler family for Purdue Pharma for their opioids. Right. And you know. I get at some level that she may be a brilliant attorney and we want brilliant people running our agencies, but at some point, and this is why I'm not a lawyer, you have to put down the disassociate and advocate mindset. Right. And I I think it's hard for some, some of the best lawyers are really good at disassociating and and advocating. Right. Um, and I guess this is, this is the, I guess the virtue of being a tenured professor. (laughs) I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) And, and, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, do, are you required to carry a firearm now and do you use it when you put people in jail? No, I don't put people in jail. No, I don't carry uh, a firearm. Okay. Cause it would be way, it'd be way sexier if you were like tenured professor <laughs> and I'm kicking in your door, you bastard. But that my firearm is data. There you go. <laughs> hey, the data is mightier than the, than the, than the Glock. I think that's, is that a saying that's. <laughs> you have to, we'll have to workshop that. Okay, all right, but it's yeah, you're you're going in the right, right direction. Right on, very good. <laughs> Greg, do you have anything else? I th- I, you know, this was fascinating to me, and this I this was great. I've got, I think, my questions that I came posed with were answered, plus plus some a lot of other insights. So, Dan, that was awesome. Yeah, some, some brain break moments. Yeah, for exa- sure. exactly. Uh, Professor Taylor, where can people find you so they can? get the latest on your work um, or if they want have questions, they want, want to get in touch. Like what's the best way to get a hold of you or okay, so learn you about can, your work? I don't have the, the website's buried in, in Wharton. So you want to Google Wharton forensic analytics lab. Okay. And that's the lab that I run at Wharton. That's the central repository for all my work, for the students work, for all of the media that we do, for all of the policy advocacy, advocacy that we do. So Google that will be the first hit. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Professor Analytics. Um, and yeah, that's basically where you can find me. Um, Perfect. But, uh, Great. But yeah, definitely follow me if you're interested. Check out the Word in Forensic Analytics. We're always looking for private sector partners. Always looking for anyone who's going to help us advance our mission of educating on fraud and, and insider trade. Nice. That's fantastic. Outstanding. All right, Greg. So I don't know if you learned anything. I mean, Professor Taylor, smart guy. Um, so, but I learned a couple things and I, I thought I'd just run a couple things by you, if I may. Please. Okay. So the first thing that I'm curious about getting your take on is he talked about this notion of private enforcement, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, lawyers who sue corporations for you know, financial reporting fraud or some kind of fraud journalists reporting on fraud, short sellers who do their own research, and then they short the stock to try. And and they usually put out a report that kind of exposes their 
their thesis right. as to why there's fraudulent behavior right, going on. Right, because they want other people to jump on their bandwagon to tank the exactly. price of the stock. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So my question, so so there is this notion of private enforcement, and that really that really kind of stuck with me. My question for you, Greg Kite, yes, is shouldn't CPAs be a part of this private enforcement? And if they should, have they kind of abdicated their role in that? Yeah. Well, I'm just curious as as what you think about that. I you know I recognize and I really appreciate your your super leading question. But I 100% disagree with where you're oh. taking it. I ab- absolutely do. Because, because here's the thing. As CPAs, we're looking at financial statements and, and, and the auditors are giving an opinion on whether or not the financial statements are prepared according to GAP and if they can be relied upon. As CPAs, mm-hmm. we're, there's, there's nothing that we analyze that has to do about what at what price the shares are being traded for and if that's an accurate price and who's doing it and when they're doing it. So I'm going to say that that we are not part of the enforce of that privatized enforcement that mm-hmm. uh, that Professor Dan Taylor was talking about. And so therefore, no, we haven't abdicated anything, even <laughs> though you wanted me to say, yeah, we're abdicating something because there's nothing for us to no. abdicate because it's outside of the scope of our you're, engagement letter, damn it. You're, you're reading too much into it, I think. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, maybe not. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> um, do you... So then let me ask a follow-up question. Yeah. Do you think... There is a place or a role for CPAs in this private enforcement. So, if you think if a, if someone wanted to, if if a, if CPAs, if a if a group of CPAs or a few CPAs or whatever, if they wanted to start a firm that said, "Hey, we do, we're going to do uh, fraud investigations, we're going to do forensic work, etc., etc., etc." Is there some kind of role that CPAs? Because like this whole idea that CPAs have, you know, they're independent, right? Yes, and. And if they were um, engaged to do work on behalf of shareholders yes. to investigate uh, some suspicious activity, uh-huh. is that is are there? I mean, there and there are firms out there that do this, obviously. Yeah. So, are they part of this private? Inf- do you feel like that 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 kind of small group of firms are a part of this private inv- enforcement? And do you think there's an opportunity for f- more people to kind of take up the cause and like, and do more work in this area. Well, I'm going to get, I'm going to get as academic as I am going to get on this, uh, as I get on this episode, as as I get on any topic. And I'm going to say that (laughs) as CPAs, one of the things that we do, as long as things haven't changed much from when I took the CPA exam is Mm -hmm. part of assurance work. One of the things that falls under that is what's called agreed upon procedures where it's not, it's not a review. It's not, not, it's still assurance work. And basically someone comes to us and says, Hey, I want you to do some research into this specific item. And then we do the research and we create an opinion and we present our results to them. It's not a gap thing. It's not anything, but it still falls under assurance work. It's agreed upon procedures. If those agreed upon procedures have something to do from looking at the data and saying, is does this help build a case that someone has done some insider trading? Absolutely. That's something that that 100% falls under our purview. And I could see there being a firm that maybe even that, that find, I mean, I'm all about CPA firms having a niche and having mm-hmm. services that they provide that 
other people can't or don't or won't. And so if that's if that's a legit niche and a need that be that a need that needs to be filled, then yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a place that that CPAs could go and could specialize in, and and we could use our our very specific set of skills to execute those kinds of uh, data analytics. Yeah, kind of like uh, you know, like uh, that fella from Taken, right? Yeah, Liam uh, Neeson. <laughs> Liam Neeson. Yeah, we have a, we have a very special set of skills. They're not skills. nearly as sexy as his, but it's still a very specialized set of skills that we can use. Can can be useful. Yeah. If somebody gets Indeed. about really, if your if your kid gets kidnapped, don't come doing account. There's not. No. We can't. <laughs> They're not going to be able to. We do can't anything. do anything for you. <laughs> well, guys, that's it for this episode. And remember, if you're going to do some insider trading, make sure you base it on hearsay and speculation and not on hard data. And also remember, it's better to be Emperor Palpatine than Dr. Evil if you're an actor and if you're a fraudster. Uh, hey, Caleb. So how, how can people find you out there in the internet uh, wasteland? I'm on Twitter. It's at CNewquist. And I'm also on LinkedIn occasionally. Uh, full name. Caleb Newquist. Greg, what about you? Uh, it's it's the same. I'm on Twitter at Greg Kite. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Greg Kite CPA. Uh, one of the things also, just as a, as a uh, point of shameless self-promotion, I've done another uh, podcast series, a limited series for Earmark called Drunk Ethics, uh, which as long as NASBA doesn't flush it down the the uh, NASBA certification toilet, you can get some sweet uh, ethics, behavioral ethics CPE for listening to my podcast, Drunk Ethics, where me and my co-host get drunk in the course of an hour while we talk about the intricacies of behavioral ethics in the workplace. That sounds fantastic. It, I didn't know you're... I- I didn't know you were plugging that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sh- it's it's shameless. I'm not going to tell you. I'm just oh. going <clears> to <throat> drop it in every time I can. You, you did mention <laughs> the shameless part. Yes. All right. Oh My Fraud is written by me, Caleb Newquist, and Greg Kite. Our producer, who does the sound design and the editing and the mixing, uh, is Zach Frank, and yeah, he does all the he does all, he does everything. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple. Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want, if you're a CPA and you want CPE, download the Earmark app and listen there and you'll get some CPE. You're welcome. Uh, Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh oh my my fraud. fraud.